You're listening to It's In Our Nature, the podcast that celebrates the connections between people and nature, with host Adam McLean, the Nature Conservancy's Missouri State Director. For more information, visit nature.org forward slash Missouri. Hi, everyone. I'm Adam McLean, Missouri State Director for the Nature Conservancy. Thanks for joining us today. This is episode number four of our podcast, where our goal is to share stories that highlight the connection between people and nature and the amazing things that can happen when we work together. Today, we are talking rivers and streams. We're lucky here in Missouri to be surrounded by some of the most beautiful rivers running through the Ozarks and the state. We're going to talk with two people who are dedicated to improving our water resources through practices that they are implementing on their own land and what they are doing to help others who want to sustain and improve our rivers and streams. But before we get started, my request always is if you like this podcast, share it with others. So joining us today, all virtually by Zoom, tis the season for that. Um, for the first time ever in our long four-episode podcast history, um, we haven't, I haven't had anybody face-to-face to talk to in the studio, so I'm looking at two screens, and they are as well, but I'm excited to talk to both of them. So Rachel Hopkins is uh, a county engagement specialist in agriculture and environment for MU Extension and one of TNC's partners with her family farm on the Hoosaw Creek. And Mike Cromery, who's the executive directory, f- director for the Watershed Committee of the Ozarks. Thank you both for joining us so much today. Glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. All right, let's get started. I'm going to start, since we're in two parts of the state, um, Mike's down in the Springfield area and Rachel uh, is in the Hoosaw Watershed, which is over on uh, kind of mid-western or mid-eastern part of the state. Um, so I'm going to start with Mike and just having him tell a little about himself and then uh, we'll bounce to Rachel and we'll just kind of figure out how to have a conversation about the shared theme um, that we're talking about, which is water and streams. So Mike, um, I know Mike pretty darn well and we've had great days afield and pretty recently we're fishing, uh, what was it, the sack? Is that where? Um, he promised me millions of fish and we caught like eight. Um, but it was still a blast. Um, so Mike, tell us a little bit about the Watershed Committee of the Ozarks. Yeah, the Watershed Committee of the Ozarks is a nonprofit organization working to protect the drinking water in southwest Missouri since 1984. Uh, in order to keep our water clean and make it cleaner, we focus on projects and education. So we have a robust uh, watershed center lots of field trips and education for students of all ages, uh, kindergartners through engineers, professionals, and then a lot of uh, groundwork out there in the watershed where we try to install practices that'll make the water cleaner for the future. Um, And uh, an interesting connection, I think, between the history of the Watershed Committee and the Nature Conservancy is uh, both were sort of formed out of crisis um, here in Springfield, Missouri, our water supply was jeopardized. Our drinking water lake called Fellows Lake had algae blooms and our water tasted bad. And the community got together and said, hey, how can we fix this? And one of the outcomes of that that, uh, conversation was the formation of the Watershed Committee and our mission to keep focused on our local water supply and water quality. So um, anyway, it's an honor to do the work, and uh, and we're making some headway, I think. I, I would completely agree. I think you're doing amazing things down there, and thanks for doing it. Um, Rachel, 
how about you? A little introduction about you and um, it's always hard for listeners in my mind um, to like get themselves somewhere when they're just listening to words. It's sometimes hard to make them feel immersed in, in a place, but I would love it if you could do that. If you could kind of take us to your family farm in Davisville, Missouri in Crawford County and just tell us a little bit about the history of how you and your family came to partner on that management. Okay, sounds good. So just to kind of give the listeners a description of our place, our farm lies, it's nestled in the Huzzah Valley. So just think of a moderate sized creek, um, not necessarily a large river, but a moderate sized creek. Uh, we mainly have the river bottoms and then upland hills from that. So it's fairly rugged. It's very stony ground, not very good for crops or traditional type ag that everyone thinks of. They used to plow it, but then I guess in about 2010, 2011, we stopped, which made things go a lot easier, to be completely honest. Our ground is very rugged, very hilly, uh, lots of trees, lots of brush, upland pastures, natural springs this traditional Ozarkian ground. Um, They're not conducive to anything but growing grass, trees, and cattle. That's really what it's conducive for. So our family farm was purchased by my great-grandfather in the mid-1930s. He purchased the original track for actually a retreat for his sales force. Mm. He worked for wherever. He purchased the original farm and then about the 19, mid-1940s, he moved down there full-time uh, out of St. Louis, right as World War II was beginning. They gradually added on to the farm and everything, and it came to compose about 1,100 acres by the mid-2000s. So we put it, or my family put it all together, and dad and I started partnership in 2012 when my grandfather passed. So just a little back history as well. In the 1947, 1948, when my grandfather came home from the Second World War, they started a dairy farm. Okay. And they dairied until 2000. In 2000, they stopped the milking and then they went full time to beef. 2012, my grandfather passed and dad and I formed a partnership. And that's when we slowly started to do more conservation work. Um, there had been a lot of, ad, not adversity, but a lot of hesitation by my grandfather due to some of the practices that were tried to be shoved down uh, throats yeah. with the Merrimack Dam yeah. um, and different things that had happened. He was very adverse to giving too much control away and working with too many organizations from those experiences. So we had hesitation. What led to it all, the start of it, was back in 2009, we started, we, we were having a lot of erosion in our stream banks. We worked with MDC and Ozark Land Trust to bevel banks. That was our first experience, and we fenced out of the Huzal at one of the farms. Okay. It was a very, it, it was stepping out into that unknown step. I yep. mean, you just did not see a step there. Very, very unknown. So we made that leap. We found out we didn't die. 
everything <laughs> still held together. Yeah. And in some ways it made the management easier because then we weren't trying to maintain cross fences on the Huzzah. It, it made things easier. That was the first catalyst. Mm -hmm. The second catalyst out of that was through that beveling of the banks, we met Abigail Lambert with Ozark Land Trust. In late 2009, I believe, a piece of property came up for sale. Mom and dad purchased it with the help of Ozark Land Trust, and they put it into the first conservation easement. So that we figured out we didn't die with that one either. <laughs> and we had to fence out of the hoozal and everything with that. We figured out we didn't die. So that was another little baby step. And then we started doing more practices. Dad sent me to grazing school in the fall of 2012 so we could participate in cost share. We didn't really know what we wanted to do, but we knew we wanted to do something, start, start something. I went to it, um, thought this is never gonna work, but I did it to check the box to get the money. We started doing more and more practices. We found out we didn't die. Uh, it was, so we were becoming more and more receptive to it. The Beckham Place, what we call the Beckham Place, is about a 500-acre tract of land up at Davisville. And in 2000, and I guess it was 14, we installed a watering system. We did miles of fencing up there, excluding Rock Branch, which is a tributary of the Huzzah. Uh, a different, we did several different items that moved us to the catalyst of working with the Nature Conservancy. I guess it was in 2016 or 2017, Rob Pullman with MDC came to us and said, we think we have a partnership with you guys. We, we kind of need a guinea pig here. The Nature Conservancy and Steve Harrington is wanting to do a project here in the Huzzah. We need a guinea pig. We think you guys would be a good fit because you've got everything lined up together. We said, okay, let's, let's see what this is about. Right. And so that's what led us to doing the big practice with Steve Harrington and the Nature Conservancy um, was that contact with Rob Pullman and Abigail Lambert and all the work we had done before them. So each step was a little baby step that has brought us to today. We didn't plan to come in. We didn't right. ever plan to make it to today, but this is where we led up from all the little baby steps that we took. I love it. Thank you for walking us through that. And I'm excited to explore a little bit more about what the project was in a second. But I want to pull Mike in by saying, um, how, how much did that resonate with you? The, the, the required leaps of faith that um, we either take ourselves or we have to ask people to take um, to move a little bit, to gain confidence and trust in things that involve conservation. Ring a bell. Yeah, so much. Um, Rachel, I was just glued to your story. And, um, and, and I have a question along those lines. Would you say that trust, um, you know, you, you said you found out you didn't die at each step, but would you say that building trust uh, with the folks you were working with was a part of the reason that you continued to take additional steps? Absolutely. Absolutely. Without that trust there, we would have never made it to where we did. We trusted Abigail, we trusted Rob, and that was after knowing them on a personal level, a personal level for seven, eight years. 
yeah. we trusted them. Yeah. We probably would not have had that trust if a year into it, they would have come to us and said, hey, do you want to do this? We wouldn't have had that trust. We've become very good friends with them. Mm-hmm. And that having that personal relationship, that personal trust, and the knowing that they're looking out for not only our interests, but the interests of the land, the interests of the water quality of making something better that has helped as well. Um, In addition to reaching their organizational goals. So trust is a huge component of it. If you don't have the trust, you don't have that partnership. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it's so, um, so neat to see corollary things across the whole state and actually across the whole field of conservation. I mean, I was just up a while ago to a levee setback project that we were working on up near Rockport. And, um, you all, all our listeners will have a, um, have a podcast to, to, that showcases that work, but governor Parsons came up, um, for that visit for a visit there in a round table discussion. And there was some quote along the lines of like, everything good comes from relationship. Like it's always, the, the secret sauce is always going to be relationships when you pull off big projects. So, so Mike, talk to us a little bit about um, the work that you do with Watershed Community, the Ozarks, and um, how you, I don't know, like give us a flavor of a program down there that you, that you work with. Sure. Um, and I'll just echo that the more I'm in this field, the more I realize it's all about relationships. Um, so some of the programs that we're, we're proud of and we think are a little bit innovative are, I'm, I'm talking with you from the watershed center. Um, this is a hundred acre nature center type situation nestled on the edge of Springfield. We've done field trips here for a long time, but, uh, on the education front, the the real secret sauce has been working with the school district. Springfield's actually the largest school district in the state. And, and we've worked with their curriculum coordinators so that what we teach here about water and the environment is all connected and correlated within the curriculum of the schools. And uh, so they can come out and do hands-on environmental education, place-based, experiential, and what we're teaching is what the teachers need us to teach. You know, we've, we've lined that all up and uh, we, we uh, operate this site sort of like our own little Sand County, uh, like Leopold Sand County Almanac. We're putting a lot of love into this property and learning a ton of lessons along the way about habitat restoration. And um, I think we set out to, teach about the site because of all the different karst and water features but as much as anything we've ended up learning from the site and Mm -hmm. uh applying that elsewhere um we can talk more about it later but one of the the things that sort of organically sprouted out of our need and desire to be stewards of this place was the formation of the watershed conservation corps Mm -hmm. um for a long time we were out in the in the woods hacking at bush honeysuckle with volunteers and making a little bit of progress but uh we've we've found a way to train young people with uh and employ them pay them a decent wage to learn the skills of stewardship of habitat restoration and water quality improvement 
and apply that to a bunch of different situations, whether it's green infrastructure in the city or doing riparian buffers out in the country. Um, and, you know, we have a fantastic team and that goes to our board and our staff and then this wonderful community. I know it's not a result of your leadership. So I, how did that come to be? <laughs> yeah, we're, it's, it's really not. We're, we're standing on the shoulders of giants here, but here's one odd and special tradition we have that I credit for this tremendous and deep partnership ethic we have here. Once a month, we host a community meeting and talk about water. And for over 30 years, people have been getting together at 7.30 on Friday morning, the first Friday of the month, and uh, learning about water. We always have a presenter. We have a chance for everybody in the room to ch share events or ideas. And then a chance after to chat, drink coffee, build those relationships. So um, truly, we uh, have a foundational wealth of relationships and it's it's kind of awesome when it's a water related challenge or a water related um, opportunity down here. It's just not hard to get people around the table focused on all the different aspects of a common goal. So I'd have to say it's one of the most um, uh, satisfying and heartening things to be a part of. It's, it's, it's a great community and good work to do. So. That's awesome. I love that tradition. And uh, we do have a, this theme of relationships, um, which is great. And I'll carry that into the question um, for you, Rachel, which is you're, you also work with the University of Missouri Extension as a community engagement specialist. Um, I assume, you know, relationships are critically important there and it takes a while to build them. Um, but I also like, in addition to telling us a little bit more about that position and how, how to go about doing that, I'm intrigued to hear both of you talking so much about terrestrial stuff, you know, rivers and streams. And that we're, yet we're talking about stabilizing things. We're talking about cutting down bush honeysuckle, stewarding the land. How are those two things linked up, Rachel, in, in your mind? They really go hand in hand. Um, you you look at conservation along the rivers and promoting good habitat, it, it really goes hand in hand. Um, to me, I think a driving force is looking back and seeing what we look, what the ground looked at or looked like yeah. essentially 150, 200 years ago. And that's a huge misconception I think that we have had is everyone thinks the Ozarks used to be this huge vast forest and in reality, there was a lot of upland savanna. There was the big trees, the big, big forested areas that people expect today. Yeah. They were isolated or they were in the river bottoms. They weren't covering the hills. You had upland savannas, you had these huge grasslands that are not there anymore. So I think taking that back and bringing that approach trying to convert something or trying to make it look like what it did yeah. is incredibly important, not only to water quality, because you look at the water degradation that we've had, um, it, it's due to a lot of different factors. Mm -hmm. So combining the two, making the two go together. you got your warm season grasses, you've got your native grasses, you have good grazing management. That, that's a lot of it whenever it comes to livestock is decent grazing management yeah. and having people realize that and 
realize how they can essentially benefit the environment because large herbivores, you don't have good management. You've got to have that. So it, it really all comes together. And if you can work towards better water quality from a livestock perspective, you have better animals, you have a better story to tell. So Mike, you, you talked a little bit about the, um, the Watershed Committee's Conservation Corps, but tell us a little bit more about that and how the size and scale of that right now. Sure. <clears throat> so the Watershed Conservation Corps, we started it about four years ago. We're in our fourth summer of operation. And uh, it, it all started with a, a small community conservation grant from the conservation department to work at Valley Water Mill, improve our habitat. And we ended up hiring a person named Caleb Sanders, who happened to be in town and, and had been working with conservation corps across the country. And as he was working for us, he identified that there was a major gap in the Midwest of conservation corps to serve this area. We were in a donut in a, in a vacant area. The, the closest ones were like Minnesota and uh, Arizona that were doing work in this area. And a lot of our federal partners needed uh, access to conservation corps because it's easier for them to get work done through the conservation corps mechanism. So he saw the opening and I saw a need, which is, we're applying green infrastructure more and more in our urban environment. We're having more and more interest rurally in native plants and restoration. These things have to work. Um, we've seen some green infrastructure projects fail. Um, and usually it's, it's due to a lack of either skillful installation or skillful maintenance. And so, you know, uh, we're preaching, all the time about how we need to have nature in our cities and use nature to clean our water. And, but we're, we're at this place where city crews don't really know how to take care of it. So um, we definitely saw the need and just sort of started by the seat of our pants. You know, we didn't have any big investment and fast forward now, four years we're employing, I think we'll be employing over 20 people this summer doing this conservation work um, and the uh, income from it is is actually greater than all of our other income sources for the watershed committee now. It's basically doubled in size each year and I think they're gonna do four or $500,000 worth of business this year. Um, wow. And we've, we've established that uh, the demand just is, is continuing to grow. Um, and for us being a, basically a locally focused nonprofit, one of the big epiphanies this year was what we really need to do is double down <clears throat> and work more locally. Um, so we set ourselves a, basically a 200 mile radius from Springfield as our, as our project area. So we are doing some work in Arkansas. We're doing work with private landowners, federal partners, um, our city and our county and city utilities um, here in Springfield. And it's pretty exciting because what a great way, you know, if you're in college and you're learning about all this stuff, um, or maybe you're not in a natural resources field, but it's meaningful work. Um, 
you get to learn and you get to take care of a place. And we find that it's a really deep and rich experience for our core members and our youth that we hire. And um, we're excited about it. Thanks for asking about it. It's, it's been a cool program and need to watch it evolve so quickly. Yeah, I am really, um, I'm really impressed by that growth and just hearing the, the demand um, that it can produce that much revenue. Every, I mean, it's great. It's a business model working to move forward conservation, which is the like epitome of people in nature thriving together. <laughs> you know, the stories that we try and come up with of examples where these things really work and, and this is possible. Um, that's a shining example of that working. So thanks for sharing it with us. Um, what's in the green bag? I know, I know listeners can't see this picture, but if you can imagine Mike sitting in the chair in this office and there's kind of a kitchen over on the right and then sitting behind him on this table is this like mysterious green gift bag. And I, I sit, I'm distracted. I haven't even heard a word you've said through most of this podcast because I just want to know what's in the bag. Yeah, I'm, uh, it's it's fantastic stuff, Adam. We had a board meeting last night, and these are the leftover gift bags. <laughs> and what is in there is all the swag from our new Fellows Lake operation. Um, so we have this really cool logo, and there's a coffee cup in there, and some stickers, and um, a you know the little foam things you put your boat keys on. Yep. Oh, the, the float. Yeah. A, can you, a key can you float. Just save me one of those bags? Yeah, I'll I'll put your name on that one. I thank you. I put applied pressure on them on and then it's recorded. So this is great stuff. I was hoping it was something good in there and I could claim it. Rachel, you mentioned, you know, a, a project with Steve Harrington being the first one that um that, where you worked with Steve and the Nature Conservancy introduced by Rob and all of that stuff. What was that project? Can you tell us a little bit about that what that specific project was and how it worked? Yeah, I'd love to. So that initial project covered close to uh, between a quarter and a half mile of stream bank. If you could stand there imagining there was about an eight to 10 foot vertical bank from where the creek was up to the top and it stretched along two different places. So what they did is they came in after they got the permitting process and jumped through hoops and we had to have an archeological dig done on it to make sure nothing was being disturbed. Took about a year and a half to get through all of those hoops. Finally got in there and what Steve and his team did, I believe it was water horse or water resource solutions. They came in and they harvested trees off of our place. That was our contribution to it. They went in, they harvested trees. They took whole tree lengths, roots, tree trunk and all. They moved, I don't know how many hundreds and hundreds of trees from the hills down to the stream bank. They dug back the stream bank and then they created essentially a wall with the root wad sticking upstream. And they buried these trees in the bank 30, 40 foot back and layered them in and sandwich them in and then put limbs in there. And they created this huge mass. Once we saw what they were doing, we realized this is going to work. (laughs) And one site, so they're due to the permitting process, they were able to get one site done, I believe, in early spring. The other site, they had to stop due to bass spawning or something like that. For whatever reason, they had to stop. They picked back up in the fall 
The second site they did in the fall, uh, before we could get a lot of good vegetative growth on it, we had a pretty good flood hit it, did a little bit of damage, but they came back in and they rebuffered the area that was having issues. And it was where Rock Branch was dumping into the Huzzah. So it was a tricky place anyway. Yeah. And now I believe that at some point here, they're going to come back and do the place above Rock Branch that compromised that where it blew out. Yeah. So it seems pretty simple. It's incredibly complex. Mm -hmm. And the way Steve described it, he is such a good, he's so good at translating what, how this is going to work together into easy terms for people who don't have water engineering skills to understand. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it, it was an incredibly complex process. We actually gained about 30 foot of bank with them doing it, with them beveling the edges and doing all the stuff that they did. It's an incredible project that we have shown off to a lot of people. We had uh, people from the state come out, DNR, NRCS. Uh, I think maybe even the core came out. We've had a lot of different people come out and look at it. It's not necessarily a new practice, but it's new for that watershed, yep. uh, new for the area. So it, it's one of the few ways to stop erosion as long as you start and end at solid points. Yeah. It, really it's really an incredible process that is one of the few that can work. That is awesome. Thank you for walking us through that. And, and yes, Steve is um, really talented at, at um, describing things in a way that's understandable. Probably because he has to talk to me a lot, Rachel. So he has to like, he has to dumb down stuff a lot and he does good at it. Because um, I just used in, in, in a podcast previously recorded uh, with the Army Corps of Engineers, we started talking engineering and I basically just started describing sandcastle making because um, I, I, that's the only thing that can make sense to me from an engineer standpoint. But so when I think of stream bank stabilizations, I was like picturing like a... Um, you're just like building this giant sub sandwich, right? Where you, you put the, you got to pull, pull this thing out and you got to put down a good strong foundation. Then you start layering stuff in there and buttoning it all down. And in the case of stream bake stabilizations, then you're throwing uh, some condiments on top or something. And that's in the form of willow staking and all the other stuff, the mats that go there. But you're building this strong layered thing, which represents what nature would have done, right? I mean, it wouldn't have been a singular thing. The, the original, what nature had there was a lot of deep intertwined root wads and other stuff that was holding it up. And I saw Mike's face, since I had the luxury of looking at him on Zoom, um, light up when you talked about uh, bass spawning. Um, and so, Mike, have you have you floated the Hoosah before and or uh, gone down that for smallmouth? I know you love to chase smallmouth. Yeah, absolutely. And that I was going to ask Rachel about that. I grew up um, in Sullivan in Franklin County and the Hoosah and the Codaway and the Merrimack, those were float streams that we um, frequented. So Rachel, have you had any fishing reports uh, post your river work? Uh, I know my husband who likes the fish. He walks around it and looks and fishing's his deal. It's not mine. I prefer the cattle. The fish are just, uh, as, if it's not suckers, I don't care to eat it. <laughs> well, you have good taste as a, as a gigger on the Merrimack. I can tell you there's nothing finer. So <laughs> that's great. No, no, but it seems like there's 
a lot of fish that like to get up under the root wads. Yeah. Um, now for fishing it, I'm not how how easy that is now because the lures I think get hooked on a lot more stuff. Yeah. But I, it looks like the fish enjoy it. I agree. I think they they become little fish factories. Those those bank restabilizations like that that have all that structure below the water are just dreams come true for fish. Yes. Yes. Well, if you ever need anybody to uh, do any sampling of the section for smallmouth bass, I'm sure you could talk Adam and I to, into to coming out. <laughs> right. We'll just go go to the Davisville portion and then work your way north. All right. <laughs> That's awesome. So, Rachel, did I I had some notes down here that said you won Conservationist of the Year uh, award for women in NRCS, and that was recognizing all the work that you've done on this land. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. I guess it was back in 2019. It doesn't seem like two years ago, but I was nominated for that by Sandy. Uh, she works for NRCS and she nominated me. I, I didn't even know I was nominated. We were at a conference meeting up in Columbia and I knew she was going to be talking and then she started talking about this award and all of a sudden she started saying who the recipient was, didn't say out a name. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's me. <laughs> that's <laughs> and awesome. I was blown away by it. Absolutely blown away. That's really great. Well, I, I know it's well-deserved and um, you've been a remarkable partner to us and many other people and your family have down there. Um, so thanks for all the work that you're doing. Um, if you, you know, thinking of your initial description of little baby steps and not dying um, along the way. I, I can completely assume that it's overwhelming for people when they look for the, look at even the suite of potential conservation practices that they could use on their land and think about trying to implement them. Would you give like any piece of advice to landowners who might want to try and implementing some of the conservation practices? Start very small. Okay. Start with easy things. Start with things that you know you can digest. An easy one for people who want to start. Uh, for, so for us, a little bit of background, it's much easier for us to work with MDC programs because we've got that really good partnership with Rob William, yep. um, Jeff Durkin. So we work a lot with MDC programs, not um, discrediting soil and water or NRCS programs, but there's a lot more hoops with those. I like less hoops. <laughs> if people are lucky enough to live in a priority geography area, and I believe there's 11, nine or 11 Missouri priority geography areas here in Missouri, they can do a lot with MDC. MDC's got a lot less paperwork. And once again, I'm not promoting MDC right. over any of the others, but if you're looking to start small and easy, a lot of times those are less complicated. Uh, woodland fencing, if you've got some bluff areas or areas that you know that can never be cleaned or are essentially not useful for anything, but your livestock get into them and it's a pain to manage it when they do get in there. NBC's got a really good woodland fencing program. Super easy to do. Uh, fencing out ponds is another one that's incredibly easy for folks to participate in. Right. If they build a new pond for their livestock to water out of and they put a watering system at the bottom of it and you live in one of those priority geography areas. And I'm not sure about the other geography areas. I'm sure they can't participate, but I don't know the specifics of if you don't live in a priority geography area. I mean, fence it out with through MDC. You benefited yourself 
by helping to promote the stability of the pond. Cattle aren't getting in there, so they have better water quality. Um, if you want to stock it with a few fish, you don't have to worry about the fish getting torn up or anything like that. Your pond's not going to get silted in as fast due to livestock getting into it. Um, it really, it's a benefit all around to do those small programs. I love once that. You, once you start with those, start working your way up. Soil and Water and NRCS, they've got great programs if you want to go out and do a bunch of rotational grazing. But it takes time to get to that point. You just don't go out there and jump into it in a week. It, it takes time to build up and starting with baby steps makes it much more palatable for people. Isn't that the story of life right there? Baby steps, start small, gain confidence, take a bite off a little bit more, tr have trust in the people that you're taking those steps with. Um, love it. Thank you so much for that, Rachel. Um, Mike, on the congratulations front, um, I think, did I hear right that you got the, uh, you recently got a USDA Regional Conservation Partnership Program grant to help our waterways? Yes. Congrats, my friend. Tell us what that looks like for Greene County and what the plans are. Great. Um, we were awarded $2.1 million. It's a one-to-one -one match, so we're looking at a $4 million project. But uh, let me let me make a very complicated effort as simple as I can. And it, it really is built on hundreds or thousands of small steps to this point. So here in our community, um, we have realized that our farmers and landowners, private landowners are not our biggest challenge to water quality. They're our biggest opportunity. People like Rachel and her family, that's our biggest opportunity. And, um, what we've also realized through some pretty hefty modeling is that uh, we, we run this model called the sustainable return on investment model. And this is looking at all the different ways we can make our water cleaner. Um, our city utilities, they provide the drinking water and they are interested in water from a source water standpoint. And um, the dirtier water is, the more expensive it is to treat and deliver. Our city and our county have federal requirements for the quality of water leaving our city. So they're interested in nutrient removal and sediment removal. So how do you do that? You can build bigger treatment plants. You can implement street sweepers. You can do engineered solutions. Um, <clears throat> so that's they put all these different uh, ideas of how to make water cleaner into this model. Here's what came out on top. $3 return on investment for every dollar spent on rotational grazing practices, riparian buffers, um, even uh, education and outreach like we do at the Watershed Center was one of the highest return on investment scenarios. <clears throat> so we know- Did you just rig the survey model to come out exactly how you, did you just rig the model to come out exactly on how you wanted it? Is that what happened? <laughs> nope, I, I didn't feed the engineers any information. This is, but boy, was it uh, validating. You know, yeah. we, we operated on belief, I think, for a long time, and yeah. it really was validated. And now we have money, we have dollar figures that we can put to this. And um, also, it makes sense, too, because working upstream on the land, 
we're getting at the sources of the pollution issues rather than trying to treat the symptoms on the back yeah. end. And here's the best part. We can improve our local farming economy. We can make more resilient farms, farms that not only grow more and better cattle, but sequester carbon and increase soil health and make stream corridors that are not only stable, but more beautiful and perhaps even have their own uses like uh, growing fruit and nut trees or you know, permaculture situations. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a big complicated project. There are 10 partners. And uh, as Rachel mentioned, the NRCS isn't exactly the most user-friendly scenario for putting cost share dollars on the ground, but it's very good. And it's the only funding of this magnitude that we had available. And we actually think that we're gonna be able to do enough practices in a concerted enough effort and area that we will be able to see the water quality needle move. Um, and our benchmark is where we suck it out of the James River into our drinking water supply. We have really excellent data for 30 years on that. So we're gonna be able to see how well we're doing. That's, awesome. that's exciting, yeah. That is exciting. Mike, I think that what you said there, um, is incredibly important for today's environment of uh, an attack on agriculture and livestock agriculture that we are having. And that farms, specifically livestock farms, can be a benefit and can be part of the solution in working together with partners rather than the flat out elimination of them. Totally. There is, there is so much pressure to rein in or to eliminate livestock or not. It depends on what you hear um, from what source, but even eliminate livestock. Yeah. And with that, you remove a huge, con there, you remove something that can contribute to this to a solution, just like carbon sequestration. You have to have the herbivores out there for good sequestration. Uh, you look back at the grasslands of the West, they had the huge herbivores moving through. It can be done correctly and it can be done very badly, but livestock can be a part of the solution as well, rather than just the flat out abandonment of it. So I think that's a very good story that you're telling there um, that, it can be part of the solution. I agree. Thank you both for reinforcing that message. Um, and, and that's exactly what, I mean, everything can be, even the best of things done, can be done in, in the wrong place or in the wrong way. Or, I mean, renewable energy can be a great thing, or you can fragment a bunch of landscape because you put it in the wrong spots. And so it, there's, there's no silver bullet that that uh, fixes conservation by getting rid of this other thing. It's always this partnership of people in nature finding ways to reinforce each other, balance each other, sustain each other in the needs of nature and of people. And I think you both just captured that really well. So I'm before I wrap up, I am going to ask, um, I, I've just had this curiosity, Rachel, you've got a little one, I think. And is it a girl? Did I hear her in the background a little bit earlier? 
correct. I had to shut the door earlier because she <laughs> was uh, relaxing on the couch watching some cartoons there. But yeah, she is five getting ready to turn six. That's all right. So I have to know, is are, you have any hopes of her taking over as the next generation to steward the land that you're working on? Uh, of course. I mean, there's always that hope. Um, I, I know I always had that want to. Um, I remember from an early age that want to. I know my dad did not pressure me into it. And that's something I'm trying to not do with her. It's incredibly hard because I have a huge passion for it. Yeah. But you always have hope. Yeah. Um, so it, you never know what the future will hold. But if without hope, what future is there? Love it. Thank you. Well, in those, in with the words of wisdom like that, uh, I'm going to give you each a, an opportunity as we wrap up to to say just if there's one thing from your work in Missouri's River that you'd like people to know, what would that be? It's if that's a as generic and general as a question as as I possibly could throw your way, but it's because sometimes there's nuggets that you that you want to share with people, um, and this is a good format to do it. So, if there's one thing from your work that you want to share, what is it, Mike? A hundred feet of trees. Let me, let me explain that a little bit more, but a hundred feet of trees. So we visited the Stroud Water Resource Center in uh, Pennsylvania a couple of years ago, and they've done most of the preeminent work on <clears throat> water quality in rivers and Clean Water Act legislation and things about biodiversity and streams and dam impacts and you know, they, they've really boiled that down to the best thing you can do for a river is 100 feet of trees. That's about what it takes to get the full value of the stabilization of the soil, of the removal of nutrients and bacteria from any overland flow or sheet flow or surface flow coming into a river. And if I had a magic wand and could just make things appear, I would just protect 100 feet of repairing area up and down every single foot of stream and river in Southwest Missouri or how, you know, the world, yeah. whatever. But like, um, especially in the Ozarks, trees do so many good things for the river and it'll be fine until you start to eat into that riparian, that forested riparian area. And that's when the trouble occurs. So that's, that's- 100 feet of trees. I like it. And do you want to, I know you have a son, before he thinks that you cussed on a podcast, you want to spell damn impact? <laughs> D-A-M. Okay. Got it. Okay. Well done. Rachel, how about you? One last thing. So I think it takes a give and take on both the organization and the landowner. I know that's what dad and I have encountered a lot is the organizations, they want X, Y, and Z. And X, Y, and Z does not always fit with the landowner or what the situation is. Yeah. Uh, for us, for example, is we have, the, the way our ground lays, you, you can't always give that 100 foot buffer because you've got roads there. You've got other, you've got things there that cannot be moved without a whole lot of impact. Yeah. And so that's what we have come back to time and time again, is there is not one size fits all, is you have to have a give and a take from both the landowner and the organizations that you work with. 
Um, that, that's our biggest obstacle that we have faced is there is the hard, fast rules that organizations want that do not fit with the landowners. And that's the biggest reason why a lot of landowners don't want to work with organizations is because of the lack of flexibility. That yeah. you have got to have flexibility on both ends for the whole, for the pie to be made. Yeah. So I that that's the biggest impair. That's my kind of closing. You have to have give and take on both ends and it cannot be one way or the highway. You have to have flexibility and compromise and working with each other to see where the needs, the wants, and what can be done where it lies. And with the understanding that creeks are moving a living organism almost that move with ebb and flow. And they may ebb one way and flow another. And you, for fencing, for everything else, it cannot be set in stone. You have to have a give and a take. So that's kind of my closing is, is I love it. a give yeah. and a take with both. I love it. And I'm sure um, Mike would agree. I can look, see if I get the thumbs up from him. Yes, I get thumbs up. And um, th even things like the 100, 100 feet of trees, um, I, I know the space that we all work in and that Mike works in. And that, that involves flexibility and having uh, having desired outcomes that are shared is what um, what makes the world go round. So... Thank you to our guests for joining us today. It was awesome. I really appreciate your time here and for all that you're doing to protect our water resources. For more information about the Stream Bank project on Rachel's Farm that we talked about, you can go to nature.org forward slash Hoosah Creek. And for more information about the Nature Conservancy and what we do in general, visit nature.org forward slash Missouri. And then if you want to reach out to the Missouri Extension Office, the best way to do that is through Missouri or extension.missouri.edu. And if you need to make contact or learn more about the Watershed Committee of the Ozarks, their website is watershedcommittee.org. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you can catch future episodes. Take care.